Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and in this episode, I'm joined by Sasha Goldstein Saba to talk about Iraqi Jewry and its global diaspora. Sasha Goldstein Saba is an assistant professor in the Department of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Groningen. She's the author of numerous publications, including her recent book, Baghdadi Jewish Networks in the Age of Nationalism, which was published by Brill in 2021. In the book, Sasha explores how Baghdadi Jews established satellite communities in India, China, and elsewhere. And we're going to talk about what all of this means as we try to understand the truly global nature of Jewish communal, commercial, and other kinds of networks in modern times. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation with Sasha Goldstein Saba. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you'll subscribe to Jewish History Matters, which is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jason. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you. I'm really excited for our conversation today about Iraqi Jewry. Uh, your book is really fantastic, and it's it's really, I think, a really good starting point for our broader conversation about uh, the history of Jewish life in Iraq in modern times. And one of the things that really struck me as I was reading through your book was that you were talking about the globalization of Iraqi Jewish identity in the first half of the 20th century. Do you maybe want to get us started by saying briefly what you mean when you talk about the globalization of this identity and also its relationship with other kinds of what we would call modern transformations, things like secularization, economic change, social change, and so on and so forth? Of course, there's a lot known about Iraqi Jewry, and I would even say that Iraqi Jewry is hip, shall we say. I mean, I, I'm guessing you know the work of Orit Bashkin, for example. And Orit Bashkin, but also Aline Schlafler and others have really looked at how Iraqi Jews Arabized in the first half of the 20th century. But we didn't really know how they saw themselves as Jews. And that's what led to this idea of both globalization and secularization. Beginning in the 19th century, Iraqi Jews, because of economic possibilities, moved first to the Indian subcontinent and then to East Asia and formed what I call satellite communities while staying very connected to Baghdad. And this happened in parallel, of course, to other changes in the Jewish world, such as obviously transnational Jewish solidarity movements. And so I looked at kind of how these different threads all fit together from the perspective of Iraqi Jews and how they place themselves in the Jewish world, shall we say. So I guess what you're kind of saying is that this process of globalization is tied to the movement of people, not just within the context of what's present-day Iraq, but you know, moving out to other areas as well within the sphere of the Indian Ocean and so on and so forth. Exactly. So on the one hand, we have this idea of a globalization of people and greater facility and travel, which allows for back and forth. And then we also have this concept of a globalization of ideas. So Jews in Iraq are reading, you know, Haskalah newspapers in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, they're reading Jewish newspapers from both Europe and North America. And they're getting newspapers from these satellite communities in the Indian subcontinent and in East Asia. And so even people who never leave Baghdad are in contact through the press and also through family members with what's happening in other parts of first the Baghdadi world, and then even on a larger scale, the Jewish world. To what extent does this approach to thinking about what you call the globalization of the community and also the global movement of ideas, you know, how does this help us to understand what's taking place in terms of modern Jewish life? in new ways, in particular, as we try to understand the agency of these Jewish communities within the movement of people and ideas? I think the big thing is that 
migration is not unidirectional. At one point, we really thought about Jews as living in one place, and then something happens, political insecurity, food insecurity, and they leave, and they don't come back. And we know that that's patently untrue. Iraq is a perfect example of this in that for almost a century, you had these really vibrant communities in India and in Asia where people would live maybe for decades and then move back to Baghdad or would regularly come back or would continue to endow synagogues. And so they saw Jewish life in Baghdad as being really, you know, intemporal. And we see this in other scholars' work as well. We see this a bit in Aviad Moreno's work when he looks at Jews in northern Morocco. But we see this also in Rebecca Coburn's work on Bialystok as well, that not everybody who goes even to the New World, who goes to America, stays there. There is a breakoff point because of you know certain watershed moments. I think what's interesting and maybe you know modern Jewish history, where I think it should go, is really to look at these exchanges when you kind of have the old country still flourishing and you have these new communities developing. And so that's what I was really interested in trying to reconstruct and really try to understand how this worked also from a demographic perspective. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about how this worked in a practical sense? You talk about people going off and living in another place for a few decades and then coming back or, you know, sending back funds or something like that. You mentioned endowing synagogues, building infrastructure back in their in their home community, as it were. What does this look like for Jewish people who are involved in the Baghdadi community in Iraq and also within the satellite communities, as you put it? We have, for all intents and purposes, between 100 and 125,000 Jews in Iraq in the first half of the 20th century. Obviously, it's less in the beginning and more um, on the eve of their mass departure between 1949 and 1951. At the same time, you have communities in Bombay, Calcutta, Shanghai, Singapore, which have between a couple hundred people up to a couple thousand people. You also have a couple of very important Jews in Hong Kong as well. And the prosperous businessman will recruit educated young men from the Jewish communal schools, including the Allianz schools, to come out to these places and work in their firms with the idea that they speak Judeo-Baghdadi, but they also speak English and or French. You could even think of it in a modern sense as expat communities. In a place like Bombay, there are ads in newspapers which entice people to apply for jobs. And they say, we have schools for your children. We have synagogues. We have everything you need. So it's very contemporary in this idea of kind of becoming an expat. Now, some people go and they live the rest of their lives there or they eventually go on. Other people go for a couple of years, make some money, and go back to Iraq. Or maybe they'll go for a couple of years, set up a business, and one family member will stay, and another family member will go back to Iraq, and they'll run some type of commercial enterprise. People will also bring over brides to, we see this in Shanghai, we see this in Singapore as well. But my favorite anecdote, just to give you a very practical way of how this works, is there is a man named David Marshall. His family's name is originally Mashal, and they change it to Marshall to become more anglicized in Singapore. And he's born in 1908. And his mother takes him back to Baghdad. The parents are born in Baghdad. He's born in Singapore to meet the family as the firstborn son of a generation. But by the time she gets there, it's 1912, and people don't just go for six weeks. They go for a year or two. She gets stuck there for all of World War I. And so they don't get back to Singapore until after World War I. Well, David Marshall will go on to be the first prime minister of Singapore. And he, in his 
lifetime always identifies as a Baghdadi. He obviously spoke fluent, you know, Judeo-Baghdadi, but we don't necessarily think about him in this way. But of course, you know, he lived during the formative years of his childhood in Baghdad, and he's writing to his cousins and later to his uncles well into the 50s when most Iraqi Jews have actually left Iraq. So there's a lot of back and forth, right? And it's seen until very late as Baghdad being a place you can always return to. And even wealthy Jews who can pick holidaying in other places, they will return to Baghdad to see family, to possibly go to a cemetery, to make a pilgrimage. So it's it's really just very, very dynamic. And when I think about these communities, I think about them in the same way we think about maybe expats today. Yeah. I mean, to what extent is this this is kind of phenomenon tied to specific changes of the 20th century methods of transportation, communication, and also one might even talk about the mechanisms of, of imperialism as well in terms of the creation of global networks and the ability to traverse them. I think all of these things are relevant and all of these things are coming together. And this is why modernity is always a problematic term. But if we just kind of think about it as having choices, people now can travel between different countries relatively easily. It's relatively safe. International banking is reliable. You can send a telegram and get information very quickly between places. And so although these networks exist before, it's my contention that certainly by the early 20th century, people who are separated by geography feel much closer to each other, that oceans just don't seem quite as big. Of course, it's not like today, but, you know, even in the 1930s, we see some reference of people taking airplanes to speed up travel, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think that you've hinted at a big issue that that we can dive into if you'd like which is that that a lot of your thinking about this um, is tied in with the question of modernization. What does it mean for Jews to be a part of the modern world, generally speaking, also outside of the European sphere, outside the European framework? One of the issues is that the terminology and the idea of modernization has been the subject of a great deal of critique over the years in as much as it often implies a unidirectional motion, you know, the certain kind of progress over time, that is, again, sort of like only going in one direction. Also, modernization oftentimes implies a sense of a singular path of modernization, as well in so much of the scholarship of trying to understand the modern world, both within the context of Jewish history, within the context of European history and beyond, is really trying to break that down and understand the complexity of modernization. As you talk about modernization as a framework for understanding 20th century Iraqi Jewry, in what ways does looking at this case of this community help us to understand modernization in a new way? Modernization is such a woolly term. Maybe it's overused, but of course, I also use it as well. And I would, well, first I would kind of mention just two, you know, scholarly examples though, of which are helpful in modernization. One of course is, you know, Shmuel Noah Eisenstadt, his article on multiple modernities. And pushing us not to think about one path of modernity. If we look at emancipation, which is central to Western European Jewish modernity, well, the path to emancipation is very different in Eastern Europe and modernity can be much more intellectual there. So I think we can talk about a different type of modernity in the Middle East and North Africa. But I always like what Sarah Abravaya Stein says in the introduction to her book, which compares the periodicals in the Ottoman Empire with those in the Russian Empire. And she really describes it as choice and that you just have this flourishing of new choices which come about. And this happens in different periods for some communities, even in the late 18th century, for many in the 19th century, for others, maybe in the 20th century. But what's interesting, if we even want to study this modernity, is then to say, well, what choices do people make? And trying to understand those choices. So I think if we just kind of frame modernity as an abundance of choices and then studying how Jewish communities make decisions, because now maybe it's also a growth in agency, that's really interesting. And I think in the case of Iraqi Jews, this is interesting 
because it leads into also how they engage with other Jewish communities and how they express their agency within other Jewish networks, such as, for example, the Alliance Network. Yeah, I mean, I think that like one of the key things is is to understand multiple modes of modernization, multiple methods and 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 pathways through the modern world and and that's part at least for me of what's interesting about Jewish history is that we see this happening among many different Jewish communities where different groups are taking different pathways but also the Jews indicate different model of modernization in some respects from the communities in which they live in many cases it is really interesting i think to look at a community like the Jews in Iraq and understand how they fit into the broader shifts and movements which are taking place, not just from the time of the Enlightenment in Europe onwards, for instance, but but in their own context and, and also specifically in the context of the 20th century, where so much is happening so quickly in many different places around the world in different directions. I couldn't agree more. And Judaism changes. We use words such as, you know, the Haskalah, for example, or we look at religious reform. And there's a lot of great work that's been done on the Haskalah in the Middle East and North Africa, and also on religious reform. But I think in both of these cases, these are themes which are overarching across world Jewry, but certainly the choices and the interpretations of Jews across the Middle East and North Africa are very different. And so when getting back to this question of secularization, you don't have fragmentation amongst Iraqi Jewry in the way that you do within German Jewry or American Jewry in the 19th and 20th century. But you have rabbis considering the role of women and the role of technology. But because it's in an Islamic context where the community, even when there's an Iraqi Republic, is a recognized religious community, they're, you know, to say it in non-academic terms, you know, they're still stuck together. They're still recognized as a community. Even if you want to eat pork on Yom Kippur, the framework remains intact. So naturally, their communal changes are going to look different than communal changes in a place like London or Amsterdam or New York. There's so much that we could go into here. I actually want to jump back to something that you said earlier. You mentioned uh, Rebecca Cobrin's book on the Jews of Bialystok and their diaspora, which which I actually also, I, I was thinking about a great deal as I was looking at your book, which I think is also thinking about what it looks like for there to be a Jewish diaspora from a place that still has a connection to their homeland, as it were. In the case of Cobrin's book, it's Eastern Europe. Here you're talking about Baghdad. But part of what I think is really interesting is that we can look at, I think, a number of different models, not just of modernization writ large, but of specific aspects of the modern world. And among them is the question of Jewish solidarity, the questions of, you know, some people talk about the emergence of Jewish peoplehood, Jewish nationalism, and so on and so forth. But if we kind of think about it in the broadest terms of of, of solidarity, we have the examples of the Alliance, uh, Israelite Universelle. You know, I'm thinking about Lisa Leff's book, which specifically uses that term. She talks about the sacred bonds of solidarity, uh, quite literally. But we see that also the case of Bialystok, also here, the case of Baghdadi Jewry. How does looking at the emergence of this kind of a transnational network and, and a sense of community that goes beyond the specific location of Iraq, how does this help us to understand solidarity in modern Jewish life in a new way? I think that solidarity and the motivations behind this solidarity are really the beginning of the modern Jewish world, at least as I conceive it um, when we talk about Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. And this begins with the work of Lisa Moses Leff, of course, in The Sacred Bonds of Solidarity. And it also plays into the work of Abigail Green on Jewish internationalism. And I think sometimes when we think about solidarity, we think about this concept of Klal Yisrael, right? And that we should all help each other out. And I don't think that's the beginning of this solidarity. I think some of the beginning of this solidarity is Western European Jews who see that they've acquired these rights and they're concerned that these rights will disappear. And thus they're motivated to ensure their rights by trying to make Jews model citizens and also find their way within imperial networks. And where are these imperial networks? 
the Middle East and North Africa, hence the French and British connections. So therein lies the interest, right? And I think what grows out of this is this kind of sense of transnational solidarity, not just from an economic standpoint or a negative standpoint in fighting anti-Semitism, but this idea that we are all linked together. Now, what's interesting, of course, is the difference between what happens in the 19th century and what happens in the 20th century as well. Because when it starts out, it's very much predicated on European ideals, which don't always align with the needs and interests of the Jewish communities in the Middle East and North Africa. And the perfect example of this in Baghdad in the 19th century is that the Alliance sets up a school in partnership with communal leaders, and they use a French curriculum. But very early on, one of the first things they're asking for are English teachers, because the English are becoming more and more important in Iraq. And the Alliance is not super receptive. So they even go out on their own and they write to the Anglo-Jewish Association. They say, we have a school, but we also need English teachers. And a theme that exists throughout this period is this negotiating within these networks. Part of what you're getting at here is that when we look at the emergence of, of Jewish solidarity in the 19th century, it's very much being driven by the European Jews and, and Jewish institutions. And so we also need to look at the agency and the needs and the wants of Jews in the Middle Eastern communities like in Iraq and elsewhere. I think that's part of what you're getting at. But there's also the, the component here in which the Jewish solidarity networks like the Alliance and so on, help then to drive the ability to create the transnational networks of the 20th century because Jews in Iraq, for instance, are being educated with knowledge of English and French. You know, as you mentioned before, this is a key asset in terms of their ability to create transnational financial and commercial networks as well. Exactly. Now, what's interesting in this is that there is always a fundamental power imbalance in some ways, you could say, within these networks. Uh, certainly, you know, between the metropole and the periphery. However, the Iraqi Jews become incredibly successful within the wider imperial networks of the British Empire. And specifically right now, I'm speaking about the Sassoons and the Kuduris, who, you know, sometimes they're referred to as the Rothschilds of the East, which is an interesting term in and of itself. Now, both the Rothschilds and the Kuduris leave huge endowments to both the Alliance Israelite Universelle and the Anglo-Jewish Association. And they become members of the boards and of steering committees. And so they also begin to direct the policies of the Alliance within Iraq. And in fact, it's a cousin of the Kuduris, who's their agent in Baghdad, who's the Alliance rep for Iraq the Levant and Iran, beginning in the late 1920s. And so there's pushback, right? There's pushback, which says Arabic is important. There's pushback about conceptions of the importance of France versus the importance of Britain. And there you really begin to see this agency flourishing, shall we say. This terminology of the Rothschilds of the East is really interesting. Both because, again, if we think about the creation of transnational networks within and also extending beyond Jewish communities, moving past the kind of like the anti-Semitic imagination surrounding the Rothschilds, right? There is this kind of transnational network across Europe uh, within that particular sort of enterprise. And you're describing something that is in some respects like that of Jews setting up outposts in, in different places of different branches of their business, not just in terms of banking, but in all sorts of kinds of commerce. So does it go beyond sort of thinking about the transnational Jewish business networks and activities that were taking place within Europe? And the Rothschilds are you know, beginning a bit earlier than the 20th century, of course. But I think that, that there is much to be said about what does it mean for the singular most well-known European example to kind of serve as the model for how people have understood 
this transnational network and kind of how we can move beyond the kind of European-centric way of conceiving of this kind of activity. What's interesting about the usage of this term, first of all, is that you see it in communal newspapers and correspondence in a very salutary way. It's a compliment to call a family the Rothschilds of the East. It doesn't carry the anti-Semitic tropes that it would in Europe or that it would carry today. I think that plays into actually a different theme is that these Iraqi families are extremely sophisticated. By the 1920s and 30s, most of them have become British subjects. They speak English very well. Their children are sent to private schools in Europe sometimes. They still maintain close ties to Baghdad through family, through business connections. For them, they also try to model themselves within a wider transnational Jewish aristocracy. Although I think the term would make some people feel uncomfortable today, it's interesting that this is also how the Jews were positioning themselves. And of course, I mean, the Sassoons marry with the Rothschilds in this period. And so they become part of that milieu, but they don't willfully distance themselves from Baghdad. They present themselves as cultured Jews who have origins in the Middle East, which are very important and valued. And they present this as something that's positive because it gives them business insight and opens up new networks. I think it's really fascinating to think about the interplay between wanting to be associated with these kinds of European networks and wanting to draw upon them, but also a sense of pride of where they're coming from in particular. I think it's really fascinating. And remember as well, I mean, they are very class conscious and they're very conscious of racialization within imperial structures. So they're positioning themselves as being European or white, shall we say. And part of this is through cultivating their position within these respected Jewish networks. Now, why are they doing this? I don't think it's an ideological decision. I think it's purely pragmatic. If they're categorized as being indigenous or oriental or Asian, and I'm talking about now about passports and visas in places like India or China or Singapore, they won't have the same rights. And so for them, it's very much a question of the rights of citizens, the rights of citizenship. And of course, in Baghdad, all Jews are given citizenship in the 1920s, and they are Iraqi citizens. But for those who can acquire particularly British citizenship, that is seen as bringing additional benefits. But that usually happens outside of Iraq. I mentioned earlier the question of how European imperialism plays a role in this story. And, and part of that aspect was thinking about the ways in which the construction of, say, the British Empire and other kinds of, of imperial frameworks is creating the infrastructure that allows for the movement of, of people and goods and information um, in the service of empire, but also that other people are able to piggyback, you know, with the creation of telegraph networks and, you know, so on and so forth. So there's a certain kind of practical aspect to thinking about the role of imperialism here. But you're also describing ways in which Baghdadi Jews are trying to be categorized sometimes in an official way as white, so to speak, or as in association with Europeans, whether on their passports or trying to gain citizenship and, you know, British citizenship or, or whatever. I guess part of what I'm getting at here and what I'm thinking about is when you look at the Baghdadi or Iraqi Jewish diaspora, in communities throughout South Asia, right? You're talking about Singapore, you're talking about Hong Kong, you're talking about you know, the Indian subcontinent, you know, which are all areas where you know the British and other imperial European imperial powers are very active at this time. To what extent are they trying to gain the advantages of the imperial powers in sort of situating themselves in this context and establishing communities and businesses within these imperial territories? I think 
Iraqi Jews or and Baghdadi Jews, so those in satellite communities or those who identify as Baghdadis. But I would say many Jewish communities are very comfortable with the idea of imperialism. They're very comfortable with this idea of one power, which allows for diversity. And at the same time, they're also very drawn to the rule of law. It's particularly, you know, a British um, or French style rule of law, which is respected. And then they're pragmatic. I know we love to study intellectuals and think about what they thought and how they saw the world. But I think, although you have some very interesting Iraqi intellectuals, most Baghdadi families had commercial interests. I think the majority of the Chamber of Commerce was Jewish in the 1930s and 40s. I can't remember the statistics. They're in a book by Hannah Batatu. And they trusted in the British Empire in particular. They saw this as a vehicle towards socioeconomic development. And in some ways, this was kind of value neutral. They, they didn't feel like Jewish life in Baghdad was in danger, and it wasn't. They were realistic that they were a recognized religious community, but they would always be a religious minority. And therefore, this connection to the empire and the opportunities it offered was seen as something that was very positive. I think there's a lot to say about that. I was thinking about, you know, not just about Jews living in Iraq itself, especially in, in the period of the British Mandate and then into the into the period of the Iraqi Republic, also about these you know, Baghdadi Jewish communities in imperial territories, you know, how they view themselves vis-a-vis the, the British and also towards the native population in the places where they're living. So, I mean, I think this is sometimes an uncomfortable position, of course, for scholars to write about. They are very aware of this highly stratified class system within British imperial colonies. And the perfect example of this has to do with the Bene Israel in the Indian subcontinent. The Bene Israel are a historic Jewish community of the Indian subcontinent, and the Baghdadis know about them, but they build separate schools and they essentially segregate the Jewish communities because they do not want to be categorized as indigenous. And they do everything in their power to be categorized as European or white for all intents and purposes. But my contention is they're not doing this because they're inherently racist. They're doing this because they're pragmatic. And they come from a minority religious community in the Middle East, and they want to ensure that they have as many rights and opportunities as possible. The big issue here, it's not just about pragmatism, right? It's not just about commerce and, and business and so on, but is, there's a, the creation of a diaspora, which is taking place here. And I think that most people, certainly among the public, uh, understand the notion of of diaspora in the Jewish context to be talking about territory outside of the land of Israel. But scholars talk all the time about the diaspora of community A, where A could be anywhere, right? The, the Eastern European diaspora or the diaspora of German Jewry after the Holocaust, in this case, the, the Iraqi Jewish diaspora. And this is true both before 1948 and also afterwards, where you have, you're describing a dispersion of Iraqi or Baghdadi Jews throughout South Asia and also elsewhere in the early 20th century. And then, of course, with the rise of the state of Israel, you also have the migration of Iraqi Jews, of many of them, uh, most of them, the state of Israel. So what is looking at the history of these transnational networks? How does it help us to understand this process of Iraqi Jewry and its diaspora, both before 1948 and also afterwards in the context of the establishment of the state of Israel? Prior to 1948, certainly, yeah, you have Baghdad, which is really the center of this, and you have Jewish communities in other places in Iraq, but the the main Jewish population is in Baghdad, and that is the center. And you have a flourishing diaspora, and there's tremendous exchange, and people see themselves as being attached to Baghdad. And this is also, I mean, people who are no longer at least consider themselves Iraqi citizens. This has to do with family traditions, language, burial places, they feel linked to 
Baghdad, and I would, you know, much more so than to the Holy Land. And they see their communities in Asia as being temporary. That's why they're, once there's a synagogue in most of these towns or two synagogues, that's fine. But if they're going to endow a synagogue, it's going to be in Iraq. They're going to contribute to the education of children in Iraq, or they're going to pay yeshiva students to, to say Kaddish for um, their departed loved ones in Iraq. And it's not exactly the same, but you also have this in a place like Morocco. You have a Moroccan Jewish diaspora prior to the mass migration of Moroccan Jews, which happens in a context of French decolonization, which is also different from the creation of the state of Israel. What's kind of interesting is that after the dissolution of the Iraqi Jewish community, which is you know, an outcome of the creation of the state of Israel, but there are other factors which has to do with Arab nationalism, decolonization. I mean, it's not just the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. You have a mass migration to Israel, but also this happens in parallel to the partition of the Indian subcontinent and tremendous political instability on that subcontinent, communism in China. Remember, Shanghai is also an important Baghdadi center. So the satellite communities are also completely upended. Who knows? You know, I mean, playing the what if game in history is always problematic, but I'm pretty sure more Jews would have gone to India if it was possible in the 1940s because we see requests for visas which aren't possible. By that period, China is already too complicated. But you actually see these communities coming back together in Israel. Some people go to the United Kingdom, but the majority go to Israel. And so you actually see the diaspora in some ways coming back together and finding itself again in Israel. And I don't think that has been studied. I think Esther Meyer Glitzenstein touches a little bit on this, but that's that's also very interesting. So you're saying that, that the diaspora communities come back together as an Iraqi Jewish community, or you have like the Shanghai? No. What's interesting is that they come back together as an Iraqi community, right? It doesn't become, okay, we're in Israel. Oh, well, we're the Shanghai Baghdadis and we're the Indian Baghdadis. Everybody is Iraqi or Baghdadi. I use the term Baghdadi because it's a little bit more neutral. Iraqi has certain nationalist undertones and many people identify with the Iraqi state, but not everybody. Either is fine, but they don't see themselves as separate communities. They see themselves as inherently linked. And, and that's what I think is interesting. And part of that is because they stay very close together. These aren't separate families. These are families that live across these networks. And due to technology, they keep in close contact with each other. I think in like the age of Zoom, so to speak, like that's one thing for us to think about, which is like, which is the role of technology in the ability to allow far-flung families to stay in touch. And what are the factors that are involved in how people understand each other and understand themselves in that context? For sure. I mean, it's not immediate like it is today in the age of Zoom, but you do have telegrams, which are quite quick, and you have tremendous amounts of letter writing. Now, a lot of this hasn't survived because of displacement and not just within Iraq, but also India and, and Asia and just the poor quality of paper. But people are regularly writing to each other and they're writing about mundane things. And they're, you know, the people in India are asking for certain spices from Baghdad and the people from Baghdad are asking for quality amba, that pickled mango condiment. Um, you imagine people getting care packages, and this is upended, of course, by you know World Wars One and Two. But these are close contacts, you know, and and I think we need to remember that, and we need to remember that just because you can't zoom, it doesn't mean that communication was impossible. There's another aspect to this as well, which is the question of Iraqi Jewish historical memory, which is to say you know, that that we're talking here about the idea of. Iraqi or Baghdadi Jewry as the center of a transnational network. We're talking about it as having a great deal of pride for their homeland, so to speak, of Iraq. And there's a certain element here also of the way in which the Iraqi Jewish community has understood itself 
um, in terms of the thousands of years long history of Jews living in that place. And also the fact that it's okay to be in the diaspora because that's literally what happened in terms of the fact that the majority of the Jews who were exiled to Babylon in the ancient world stayed there. As we're talking about the sort of the origins of the Iraqi Jewish community and its history, to what extent are they drawing upon this kind of historical memory or even the historical memory of the idea of the Gaonate from the early medieval period when you see the Jewish communities of Babylonia as the kind of the center of a transnational Jewish network when we talk not about business necessarily, but about religious interaction and the development of Jewish law and so on and so forth. So to what extent are Jews in Iraq in the modern world in the 20th century, you know, are they drawing upon this historical memory and sort of a sense of self that is coming from this view of the past and, and their understanding of themselves and their own transnational networks? So I can't talk about it in the contemporary context, but certainly in the context of the interwar period, it's super interesting because you see within correspondence, particularly with other Jewish communities, that references are made to this historic past. And what I find interesting about these references is that there is a pride in this long history and it is mentioned but you also see letters where some Iraqi Jews realize that maybe they, they've become a bit of a backwater in the Jewish world. And so they'll write in letters. This is writing to the Joint Distribution Committee in New York saying, we're the Jews of Mesopotamia. Today, the country is called Iraq. You really see this. And they'll, they'll make reference to this long history of being the original diaspora and the composition of the Babylonian Talmud and the Gaonate. So they're very proud of it. But usually when they're writing to people they don't know, and it's kind of, it's not even, you know, like a public relations move. They're just trying to remind people that, hey, this is a traditional center of Jewish life. Um, and this is more within these transnational solidarity networks. Also in the very beginning, justifying why the, these, this is an important Jewish community to support. I think that's interesting. But the first time I read a letter where, where someone said, yes, I live in Iraq, but you might know it as Mesopotamia. I just thought that was just so interesting trying to get into the mind of this man writing, thinking, what is this guy in New York going to think about me? How will he connect to my community? I mean, I guess part of what I was just thinking about there was, did it resonate with them that they were creating these transnational global networks and, and that was what had sort of been centered in Babylonia, present-day Iraq, over a thousand years ago? I don't think so. I mean, perhaps, but I haven't come across any writing that would suggest that. that. I think they definitely saw these new networks as very much a product of their time. Um, and they weren't they weren't drawing conclusions. I think they also perceived those networks as being more regional because Baghdad traditionally had strong connections to Halabi, Aleppo Jewry as well. They put that more in that context. Now, of course, in the time of the Gonade, it, it will eventually extend as far as Al-Andalus, but you don't really see discussions about that. When we talk about the transnational networks in the Iraqi Jewish diaspora of the 20th century, how does all of this change our understanding of, of the geography of modern Jewish life on a global scale? What I mean by that is that you are not just sort of reorienting us away from Europe, but also kind of showing us an entire broader world beyond the Middle East and North Africa as well, as you're thinking about this diaspora. Even just like you think about the Jews of Shanghai, Right. Many times that people talk about Jews in Shanghai, actually, the context is the Holocaust, right? As we're talking about Jews from Europe making their way to, uh, to China. So here you're kind of like reorienting us in, in some other ways, again, away from European Jewry and helping us understand the global Jewish world in a different way. Right. And this is what's super interesting is that modern Shanghai or the European part of Shanghai in part is built by Baghdadi Jews. The first modern hotel. I can't remember if it's built by the Sassoons or the Kaduris, but one builds a hotel and then the other builds a hotel. The Children's Palace today in Shanghai 
was the former home of the Kaduri family. And there was a functioning, active Baghdadi community. It wasn't huge for many, many decades. Macy Meyer writes about this in a really great book called From the Waters of Babylon to the, I think it's to the banks of the Wang Po. But you're right. People just think about it in the context of the Shanghai ghetto. But who facilitates the Shanghai ghetto? The Baghdadis who are already there. They work with the JDC. So this is a case where you have European Jews and Jews who are Middle Eastern origin coming together in a completely different theater. And um, also in a different context in that the privileged Jews who have the agency and have the connections are the Jews who come from the Middle East. And we don't always think about that. So I think it's important to think about kind of different theaters of Jewish interaction. And unfortunately, I mean, a lot of times modern Israeli historiography has kind of effaced some of these very interesting interactions. Yeah. I mean, I want to perhaps, you know, as we wrap up, come back to this question of Israeli or Zionist historiography and how we can break away from that. But I want to think a bit more about this question of of the geography of, of Jewish life in the 20th century, which is to say that you are describing here and thinking through a Jewish diaspora, a really broad and diverse and dispersed Jewish community through large regions of the world that go beyond Europe, that goes beyond the Middle East as well. And what is interesting is that in the post-Holocaust era, generally speaking, I think that one of the major developments on a global scale as we talk about Jewish life is the continued movement of Jews to the extent that there's a shift away in a certain sense from having these Jewish communities in far-flung places, you know, a shift away from dispersion towards centralization and not just centralization in the land of Israel, but just in general that the proportion of the Jewish population, globally speaking, is centralized in particularly in the United States and in the state of Israel. We see this, you know, even continuing up until today, that Jewish communities still exist in, in many places around the world. You know, you yourself are in the Netherlands, right, as we're speaking, but the numbers are much less in many of these places. You know, and so all of what I'm trying to get at here is that when we look at the history of Iraqi Jewry and its diaspora over the course of the 20th century, how does it help us to understand the move towards centralization as we get to the second half of the 20th century? I think actually the centralization waxes and wanes. And obviously the Holocaust and the creation of the state of Israel influenced this tremendously. That being said, I don't know if I agree with the statement that you have this kind of consolidation of population. Yes. Okay. The New York metropolitan area and the state of Israel, hands down. That's the first map, demographic map I show my students. But you have a really interesting, thriving Jewish community in Sao Paulo with a smaller outpost in Rio. You still have a Jewish community in Singapore, which is very proud of its Baghdadi roots. If you eat there for Shabbat, they'll still serve Baghdadi food. I think there are shifts. And I also think we now see new communities forming because Israelis are are going elsewhere and they're forming new communities. And, and some of these people are secular and they don't organize communally. I think that may, what's interesting about Jewish history is that you just consistently have these demographic shifts and you will always have centers of Jewish life and you will always have peripheries, but it's more where do these peripheries go and why do certain communities migrate? So I think the diversity is there. Also, I would say a Jewish community in Iowa, for example, that's still pretty far flung, right? That's pretty far away from large demographic centers. The U.S. is is massive. So I think it's there. However, all of these small Jewish communities in Europe, I mean, those have disappeared, but you have new Jewish communities, although they are certainly centered in world capitals. Um, and so some of the diversity is lost. I would say that being said, I teach at the University of Groningen. We have an amazing synagogue, which predates the war. And I think the community has a hundred families as members, but 
as the university's grown, there are more and more students and lots of students coming. So I think this kind of indicates these shifts. This is an issue that I talk about with my students quite a bit, you know, which is this, this question of this tension between dispersion and centralization. As you put it, I think it's a great term to use the, to think about it in terms of consolidation as opposed to centralization. I mean, I think that there definitely is an aspect where, of course, there are Jewish communities in, again, so many places around the world. And, and you do see the attempt sometimes on purpose, sometimes it's just organic. Sometimes it's purposeful and sometimes there's organic growth. Right. Sometimes it's on purpose. Sometimes it just happens or it's organic. Uh, you talked about Israelis moving to places and establishing communities, uh, whether we're talking about Israelis in Berlin, right, or Israelis in you know Silicon Valley or I mean, or beyond that as well. But also just think about Chabad right, and the establishment of sort of Chabad outposts all over the world. There's a whole conversation to be had about that in particular. But at the same time, I think that we still do see a certain type of consolidation. The number that I talk about, you know, based off of some of the studies from Brandeis, when you look at even at American Jewry, right, you talk about New York, right? Well, that's because the vast majority of Jews in the United States are living in only a handful of states. New York itself is not necessarily the only place where Jews are, but Jews are at once, they're everywhere, but they're also centralized in, I think it's like 63% where two-thirds of American Jews are only in a handful of states in the United States. For sure. This idea of consolidation. Afterwards, Eastern Europe is certainly different historically, but in Iraq, for example, the majority of Jews lived in Baghdad, and then you had communities in Basra and Mosul, which were much smaller, and then you had some towns with a couple of Jews. Most places in the Middle East and North Africa, not all, also had Jewish communities that were heavily urban. I mean, the two examples of rural Jewish communities that, you know, we always tell students are Yemen and Morocco. So I think there's a natural consolidation because of what it takes as a religious minority to have a functioning community, right? If you want access to kosher food, if you want some type of Jewish education, if you want burial, Uh, Certainly in the 21st century, fewer people perhaps care about these things, but that does push a certain type of communal consolidation. But I also think because of, of globalization, you have interesting communities popping up again. For example, today in Shanghai, and I've never been to Shanghai, you have lots of Jews who work there, maybe not post COVID that I'm not sure about, but what synagogue do they pray in? They pray in a synagogue that was built by Baghdadis. So you still have a community there. Afterwards, what customs do they follow? That's a bit different. So in Hong Kong, you also have a synagogue that was built by Baghdadis and they follow an Ashkenazi Nusach. But in Singapore, they still follow follow the Baghdadi customs. So you do have some places. And if you go to Sao Paulo, the majority of the community is Ashkenazi, but you have a Syrian Lebanese community, which includes some Baghdadis and some North Africans, they also follow, you know, really Middle Eastern and North African traditions. And it's very interesting how they kind of negotiate the different traditions across the region. So I think we see new centers of Jewish life. And I'm sure if we were to do a diachronic analysis, we would see this also in Europe over time. I mean, Amsterdam was always the center of Jewish life in the Netherlands, for example. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think if we're looking at especially contemporary Jewish life in Europe, it is much stronger than a lot of people would assume in many different places. Yeah. And it's different, you know, this whole multiple modernities. It's Jewish life in Europe is not Jewish life in Israel, and it's not Jewish life in North America, but we're able to do a lot. But I think that diversity is always there. We just don't always think about it. And maybe Baghdadis are an example of this diversity in the 19th and 20th century, which we haven't talked about enough. And we should see it in this continuous line of interesting Jewish communities in far fun places. I wish we had like another hour to like dive into more of these things. There are just one or two other things I want us to kind of talk about before we wrap up. And this is a theme that I think has come up in a couple of episodes that I've done with some colleagues 
particularly about Middle Eastern and North African Jewish history. But I think it goes beyond that as well. But you've mentioned this in our conversation. You talk about it in the book as well, which is that so much of the conversation about Iraqi Jewry and its history takes place within the context of debates about Zionism. Um, And this is true both in terms of the historiography, the historical research, and all the conversations that are happening there, and also beyond that as well. Do you maybe want to say a quick word without getting too deep in the weeds of the historiography itself, but what is the influence of Zionism and Zionist approaches on how people have understood Iraqi Jewry and what are some of the ways in which we can see it on its own terms as opposed to seeing it through the lens of Zionism and also to sort of like frame this a little bit more one of the key issues is that so many of the Iraqi Jews immigrate to Israel in the 1950s. We should not necessarily look at history backwards, you know, in a teleological sense. So that's like one of the aspects of this as well. How is it the migration of Iraqi Jews to the state of Israel has had an impact on how we understand Iraqi Jewish history? Because we know that that's what happens you know, as a major part of the story, but we kind of want to perhaps move beyond that and see it on a bigger picture scale. This is obviously a whole field and there are multiple good books about it. But very briefly, you kind of have two schools, okay? And one is the Lacrimose school, which is kind of like the Zionist traditional mainline historiography. And that's the one that says the Jews of Iraq They tried to integrate. They were never fully accepted. And the state of Israel was their great savior when they were imperiled. I'm giving like very broad lines. And then you have the neo-lacrimose side, which said the Jews of Iraq were all very happy living in Iraq and saw themselves as Iraqis. And then the state of Israel was created and this ruined their communal organization and it is Zionism which destroyed the Iraqi community, right? That's like very traditional, very parochial. And of course, there are nuances in this as well. But the truth is, the dissolution of the Jewish community of Iraq was traumatic. Mass migration in this sense is traumatic. And part of the reason it's traumatic was not just the displacement in, in Iraq, but it's also the experiences in early state Israel in the Ma'abarot, in the transit camps. And that shifted Iraqi collective memory. I think studying this collective memory is very interesting, but that moment upheaval and of trauma is not indicative of Iraqi history. In the 1930s, 1940s, well, early 1940s, no one thought there would be a state of Israel. There was no conception of this. People knew about Zionism. Most were ambivalent. They were interested, but they were more interested in looking at their position in Iraq or other socio-political issues. I think what's important is just not to view these communities through certainly a reified Zionist narrative or an anti-Zionist narrative either. And it's just to look at what people wrote, where they lived, and appreciate them in their time and place. I guess part of what I'm really interested to think about here is the question of how it is that looking at this type of transnational networks, this this Iraqi Jewish diaspora that you describe in your book, how is it that looking at that kind of diaspora, that kind of dispersion, helps us to understand these issues in a deeper way. You know, so what's the big takeaway? Why does it matter to look deeply at the Iraqi Jewish diaspora, both as we're thinking about this question of disconnecting ourselves perhaps from the debate about Zionism and understanding people on their own terms, but also more generally as we're trying to understand kind of big picture issues about modern Jewish life, about the development of globalization, about uh, about modern commerce and community and so on? I think this very much ties into socioeconomic mobility and push and pull factors of migration and not always looking at Jewish migration through a lens of trauma. Because I think it's interesting to look at the decisions that these 
Iraqi Jews made. You know, going to India was not necessarily an easy decision or Shanghai or Singapore or Hong Kong. And getting back to, you know, what I said before, it's when people have agency, when people have choices, what choices do they make? Not And choices that aren't made under duress. And so I think looking at the choices of Baghdadi Jews in terms of their collaboration with the Alliance, their collaboration with the Anglo-Jewish, their decision to develop these trade networks is inherently interesting. And it shows that nationalist concerns, be they Arab nationalist concerns, be they Zionism, be they other forms of nationalism, aren't necessarily at the center of people's everyday lives. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat about these issues and about your book. It's really just been a pleasure. This is just really great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for all you do with the podcast. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.